Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill. So good to see all of you who are here live in the worship center. Those of you joining us online, those of you in the Crosspoint Center, I met a new family today. Let me see if I get all their names right. I see you right over there on the left side. There's Jamie and Stacy and Hadley and Kylie and Nona. So everybody here say hello. One, two, three. Oh, and on the other side, I see Darcy Lefevre. She's over there by herself. Everybody shout, say hello, Darcy. See, we can see you. No, they can't, not really. But um, having the opportunity to go over there at the beginning of the services and greeting folks, it's always good to make that connection with them, but we appreciate uh, the large group that is meeting over there every single Sunday. Um, One of the things that if you have small children or you have small grandchildren, you know that one of the things that little kids are good at is asking questions. They ask questions about everything, don't they? They're always um, uh, curious, and they always have a set of questions, and they, they could range from anything, like, like, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? How do birds fly? What is the thermal, the coefficient of thermal, the, you know, I don't know. They <laughs> come up with all kinds of questions, but they're always filled with these little questions. I remember um, Leslie, my daughter, when she was younger, she asked one of the most brilliant questions that I have never forgotten. One night we were doing our Bible time and we're talking about how big God is. We're talking about he's bigger than the universe. He's bigger than anything you can imagine. And she asked the question, she said, dad, if God is bigger than the universe and if God lives in me, shouldn't he shine through? Though that is a great question. This is a brilliant little girl here. And this is the same girl who came home from school one time and said, I'm so glad y'all named me Leslie. I said, why? She said, that's what everybody calls me. So, but they can ask a lot of questions. But it's interesting. When they're little, they ask you a lot of questions. But when they get to be teenagers, they question you a lot. Have you noticed how that changes? It goes from asking a lot of questions to questioning you a lot. They become skeptics of us. They, they think mom and dad don't have the life experience to be able to answer the questions that they have. I remember my son one day, he, just, he, he was at that age where he just questioned everything, everything. And I said, Ryan, you argue with me about everything. What was his reply? No, I don't. And then he just smiled and realized, I guess I do. I guess I do. And what's really particularly fun for me is when they come as teenagers to ask you a question that they already know the answer for. They already know the answer. And so what do they do? They use all their chores and all the responsibilities they're supposed to use. I am, I'm outing all of you teenagers right now, okay? And so they use all of these chores that they're supposed to do and use that as leverage. One time Leslie came to me and she said, Daddy, I know you're probably going to say no, but can I go to so-and-so's house to spend the night? Now, before you answer that, Daddy, 
Let me know, let me let you know that I've done all the chores in my room. I've cleaned up the room. I've, I've, I've done all the clothes. I've folded them. I even brought Ryan's clothes to his room. And when I was downstairs, I emptied the dishwasher. And I just want you to know I've done all of those things. And I said to her, Leslie, I'm impressed on two, re- t- two things right now. I'm impressed with the fact that you fulfilled the responsibilities that we have for you to live with us. Secondly, I am amazed at your perception that you already know the answer to this question, so we don't need to talk anymore. And then, of course, the response was, you never let me have any fun. And she storms off. And I'm thinking, really? I've been with this girl for 13 years, and I'm batting zero on the fun meter of her life? I I love what Mark Twain said about teenagers. He said, when they get to be teenagers, you should put them in a drum and feed them through a hole in the top. And when they turn 16, you stop up the hole. (laughs) Now, the reality is this. We've all been there. We've all been skeptics. We've questioned our own parents. We've, We've questioned authorities. We have even been the skeptics many times that have questioned God, haven't we? And we can find ourselves in these arguments with God and the questions that we might ask because we don't understand something or we want to defend something about our own lives, so we ask some questions. Well, we've been in the book of Romans. This is our fifth week, and we have made it all the way to chapter three. And in chapter three, the apostle Paul confronts an imaginary skeptic. Now, Paul has been laying out for us the reasons that we need the gospel. And if you remember, he's given us a number of reasons why we need the gospel. We need the gospel because of the judgment of God that is on us. He first spoke to the Mr. Immoral Man who wanted God to leave him alone and let him live his life. But Mr. Immoral Man, you still are under the judgment of God. And then he spoke to the Mr. Morally Superior Man who thought that he was better than the immoral man, but God said to him, you are still under the judgment of God. Then he spoke to the Mr. Religious Man, who thought he had all of these things and he had life together, but apart from a relationship with God, he was still under the judgment of God. And now we come to chapter three, and he's bringing a conclusion to his argument of why we need the gospel. He's taken up to our knees with the immoral man. He's gone to our waist with the morally superior man. He's gone to our chest with the religious man. Now he's about to bury us. Because in this concluding passage, he speaks about the guilt of two kinds of people. So if you, if you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 3, we're going to go through verses 1 through 20, and we're going to conclude the argument for why we need the gospel. And he begins with the guilt of two groups of people. Here's what he begins with. He first starts with the guilt of the irreligious skeptic. He's having this imaginary conversation, and this skeptic is going to ask the Apostle Paul three questions. And these three questions are questions that many people even ask today when they get in an argument with God. But what Paul's going to do is undermine their arguments, and he's going to destroy every one of them. And the first argument and the first question is found in verse one. This is what the irreligious skeptic says. Then what advantage has the Jew? 
or what is the value of circumcision? Now, Paul, you've been talking about all of these things and all of these people are qualified to be righteous with God. Then what's the purpose for religion? What is the purpose? I mean, here are these Israelites. They're the chosen people of God, aren't they? They've got the revelation of God. They've got his word. They've got the prophets. They've got all of these great miracles that they can draw on. They go through the synagogue. They listen to countless messages about God. They live their lives to try to follow these rules and these regulations. What is the good of religion? And today, a lot of people ask the same question. People might say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean I'm wasting my time? Am I wasting my time by going to church every Sunday? Am I wasting my time by putting my kids in the nursery or in the children's ministry? Am I wasting my time and my money when I send my children off to camp, Bible camp, or send my kids to VBS? Or let's say I send my kids to a, a, a mission trip or I send them to youth camp. Am I wasting my money when I send my kids to a Christian school? Am I wasting my money when I spend thousands of dollars in a Christian university? What's the point of doing all of this? And then Paul answers the question. He says, much in every way. Is it valuable? Yes, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He said, there is a purpose for all of these religious activities. And they're beneficial in every way. They have the word of God. They have the revelation of God. They have the prophets of God. They've got the 10 commandments. But here is where the skeptic misses it. None of those things was for the purpose of providing salvation. All of those things were to show them why they need salvation. The Ten Commandments were never given so you and I can raise to some new higher level of living. They never were. The Ten Commandments were given to show us that there is no possible way we can achieve those goals. And every bit of it is for the point of showing us why we need God. So when you send your children to VBS We teach them about who God is and who Jesus is and the plan of redemption and who they are and pointing them to their need for Jesus Christ. When we send them to a youth camp, we're teaching them about who God is, who Jesus is, his plan of redemption and their need for a savior. When they're in small groups, we're teaching them about all of these things. Those things are not the things that will save them. Those things are the tool that is used to show them why they need Jesus. So in every way, the ministries are good if they're pointing us to the reality that we need the grace of God in our life. So the skeptic asked the second question. And what is the second question he asked? Well, what if some were one unfaithful? What if there were people chosen by God who are living in his kingdom? They have the word of God. They have the 10 commandments. They've got the prophets. They've got all of these things. God has poured all of this out and yet they're still unfaithful to God. If they're unfaithful to God, that's evidence that the word of God is not powerful. God himself is not powerful. And therefore, if they reject God, God's plan of redemption has failed. And so what they do is they hold God hostage for the unfaithfulness of men. 
People still ask the same question. There was a question going around for a long time. People would say that God is all loving or he's all powerful. God cannot be all loving and all powerful. He cannot be both. He's either one or the other. Because if he's all loving and he loves people, but he doesn't stop wars and diseases, then he obviously is not all powerful. And if he's all powerful, but he doesn't intervene in the lives of people who are suffering, then he cannot be all love. And it's a circular argument. And here's the problem of this argument. The argument falls on its head because of Paul's answer. He says, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. This is the strongest phrase in the Greek, meganeto. It means God forbid. In other words, he's asking the question, he says, if the faithfulness, faithlessness of people, does it nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. And the reason it doesn't is this. Here's the point we need to remember. One of the things we need to know is that the unfaithfulness of man does not ruin the work of God. The unfaithfulness of people never undermines the faithfulness of God. Because God is always accomplishing his work. And you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the gospel is a power of God unto salvation, and I've been sharing the gospel with this person, and they reject it, and they walk away from it, and they don't want anything to do with it, then God's word must not be that powerful. No, the unfaithfulness of man never undermines the faithfulness of God. Let me give you an illustration. Many years ago, I, I had a, a young man that was on my heart that I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart about and said, take him to lunch and share the gospel with him. So I did. We met at a restaurant. I began to share the gospel with him. And it was a long conversation back and forth. And this little waitress kept coming and coming and she kept filling our waters up all the time. I was thinking, girl, you're going to drown us, you know? And we're talking and all of a sudden he gets mad. He says, I don't want to hear this Jesus stuff anymore. I'm done with this. He leaves the restaurant. I'm sitting there thinking, God, did I mishear you? What happened here? I felt like I was faithful to what you've called me to do and, and I'm sharing the gospel and this guy gets up and walks out? What's the deal? About that time, the little waitress came back and she pulls a chair up and she says, I'm probably gonna get in trouble for this, but I've heard every word you said today and I need Jesus as my savior. There's the power of the gospel. The faithlessness of this person who reject the gospel did not ruin the work that God planned for that waitress. And right there in the middle of that, we see the sovereignty of God in redemption and we can't explain it. It's a mysterious thing. We're gonna look at it in chapters eight through 11. But God is always at work regardless of the faithlessness of other people. And then he puts it this way. He says, let God be true and let everyone were a liar. He said, God is true and everyone else is a liar. Basically, Paul is saying this. Listen, it doesn't matter what people say about God. It doesn't matter what people say about his word. It doesn't matter what people say about his ability. God is true and every man is a liar. And we know this, that if a man gets an argument with God, God always wins. 
And if a man calls something that God says is true a lie, that man, that woman, is a liar. I love what C.H. Spurgeon wrote about this very verse. Here's what he says. It is a strange, strong expression, but it's none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus and opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than the universal opinion of men. Boy, do we need to hear that today. We need to know this, no matter what the culture says, about life, no matter what the culture says, about sexuality, no matter what the culture says, about all the hot topic buttons, what God says is true, always. And if anybody ever asks you the question, where does Scotts Hill lean? Does Scotts Hill lean left or does Scotts Hill lean right? You say to them, Scotts Hill does not lean. We stand on the truth of God's word and we love based on the truth of God's word. That's where we are. That's where you should be. Because everyone else is a liar. So what Paul does is he destroys the second question. Now he gets to the third question. And this one is the most ridiculous of all. The skeptic thinks he's going to be really, really clever here. He's trying to trick God with this question. And maybe I can trick him. It's one of those questions that you ask that is nothing but foolishness. Like, can God make a rock so heavy that he cannot lift? It's kind of in that category as C.S. Lewis talked about. But here's what he says. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Here's what he's saying. If my unrighteousness shows how righteous God is, why would God condemn me? My unrighteousness is pointing to his righteousness. Therefore, instead of God condemning me, he should pat me on the back. He should give me a reward because I am reflecting his righteousness. Or at the end of this, he says, he says, but if Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's like, hey, if I lie and God is truthful, my lie only reinforces the truth of God and therefore God receives glory from my lie. And it's a ridiculous thing. He says, I speak as a man. Doesn't mean he's not speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I speak as a man. I am speaking as a man who is lost, a man who is in the flesh. And again, he says, by no means, God forbid. You know, Judas could have used this argument. Judas could have used the argument, yeah, I sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, I was in it for fame and fortune. Yeah, I reported him to the high priest. Yeah, I set him up in the garden. Yeah, it was my lie and my deception that caused him to go through the trials. Yes, because of what I did, Jesus was indeed crucified and put on the cross. But if I hadn't done what I did, Jesus never would have gone to the cross and therefore the redemption of mankind would not have happened. Can you imagine him saying that before God? And what God would say to him, 
Yes, Judas, you did all of those things. But I used your sin to bring about my glory. But Judas, it's still your sin. Here's the principle. Even though God may use my sin for his glory, it's still my sin. And I'm still responsible for it. And we can never get to a place where we can say, well, you know what? My sin caused this good thing because that's where these people were. Look at verse eight. He says, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. It's just. I'll say nothing else. Your sin is your sin. One of the things we like to do is justify our sins sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we want to justify our sins. We either justify it by saying, you know, it's not as bad as that person. You're right. Well, you know, my sin actually brought about these things for the glory of God. If I wouldn't have done this, then these things wouldn't have happened. That's true. God just used that for his good, but you're still condemned. And you're still under the judgment of God. Now, For the believer, there's sometimes we do that. And we're not under the judgment of God, but we're still responsible for our sins. That's why John says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He gets specific there. He says, confess your sin, own your sin. And the thing we never want to do is own it. We just want to give this this kind of generic, innocuous prayer to God. God, forgive me of my sins. God says, which ones? Which ones? Own them. God, forgive me of my, my lust. God, forgive me of my anger. Now we're getting somewhere. God, forgive me for my self-righteousness. You see, until you own your own sin, you keep it in a safe place that is innocuous. But God says, own it, name it. Now we can deal with that. So he tears down all the arguments of this religious skeptic, irreligious skeptic. And he moves on to the second part. And what does he do? He talks about the guilt of every sinner. He wraps it up here. He ties it up with a bow. And he says, listen, it doesn't get any worse. It's just really more of the same. So let me reiterate what I've been telling you about the fallen nature of people and why now God's judgment is on the whole world. And we find in verses 9 through 20, that he is going to give us an x-ray, an MRI, if you would, of every fallen human heart. And here's what he begins with. He says, we are all dominated by sin. Every one of us dominated by sin. He begins in verse nine. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So we're dominated by sin. What does that mean? That means two things. It means sin is universal. Every single one of us is born with a sinful nature and every one of us sins by choice. We all are. 
You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And every one of us without fail through the entire world has a sinful nature. Here's the second thing. Not only is sin universal, sin has ultimate authority. He says that we're under sin. That word under is very, very significant in the Greek. It means two things. It's a military term, which means you're under a commander. That you are an insubordinate. There's somebody who's superior over you. But it's also used in the slave market. You are sold into sin. And so either way, we have masters. We have something over us. And sin becomes our master. And some people say, no, no, no. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that at all. I believe that I can go without sinning. Great. Do it. Do it. And no good sermon here is a good sermon without a Market Street illustration. (laughs) I've seen you on Market Street. And no good sermon is going to be a good one about pulling out of this parking lot. I've seen you try to get on the road. We're under sin. See, Spurgeon had a guy come to him one day and said that he'd reached a place of sinless perfection. So Spurgeon was like, really, man, I'm intrigued by this. You don't sin anymore? You never sin? He says, no, I don't sin. He says, I want you to come to my house and have a meal with me, and I want to talk about the fact that you never sin. So this man comes over to his house. He's sitting at the table. He's drawing on and on and on about how I never sin. I'm perfect. I'm sinless in my perfection, da-da-da-da. Spurgeon gets up with a glass of water, walks into him, and throws it in his face. The man jumps up, his face is red, he's angry. Why did you do that? And Spurgeon said, amazing how a little glass of water can resurrect your dead man. We can't do it. We're dominated by it. But he tells us the second thing. Not only are we dominated by sin, but he gives this incredible picture of our nature. Notice what he says in the following verses. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's painting a picture of humanity apart from God. What is it? Here's the second thing he says. Not only are we dominated by sin, but secondly, we are all depraved by sin. The theological term is total depravity. We're totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could ever be. That's not what that means. It means that every aspect of our being is infected by sin. Our thoughts, our words from our tongue, our yells from our throat, the actions of our toes. From head to toe, Paul says, we are depraved by sin. Every single thing about our being is infected by sin. Matter of fact, he gives five things through this. Number one, we are unrighteous. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. Every one of us is unrighteous before God. Secondly, we are unreasonable. 
He says, no one understands. The word there means they do not grasp the serious nature of their sin and their separation from a holy God. Thirdly, we are unresponsive. No one seeks after God. You might say, no, wait a minute, man. I know a lot of people who are seeking after God. Yeah, we usually seek after the kind of gods we want and not the true God of the Bible. In fact, left to ourselves, you and I would never seek after God. It's only a work of the Holy Spirit that begins to work in our minds and our hearts and change our thinking so that we can be able to see the true God. We'll get into that later. We are unproductive. He says you're worthless. The word worthless in the Greek is a picture of rotten fruit. Rotten fruit. How many of you have a fruit basket at home? How many of you put fruit in it? How many of you always, usually, most of the time, maybe none of the time, maybe every week, your fruit goes bad? And what do you do with it? Do you crush it up and make some gross fruit soup out of it? You throw it away. Why? It's worthless. And the same thing in and of ourselves, we are worthless. And the last thing he says is this, we're unrepentant. No fear of God. I'm just going to live my life without the concept of God. I'm going to live my life without the worry of one day I'm going to stand before him. I'm going to live my life unrepentant of the things that I know God wants me to do, but I'm going to live this way anyway. This is the picture of people who are without Christ. And every one of us is in this place at some point. But here's the last thing he says. The guilt of every sinner. We're dominated by sin. We are depraved by sin. But lastly, we're doomed because of sin. Verse 19, here's what he says. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see this little word stopped? That sounds like really nice, huh? Every mouth stopped. Let me put it in a colloquial term that may sound a little harsh. When we stand before God one day, we will shut up. We will have no argument. There's nobody going to stand before God and say, let me tell you what I think about you. Like the guitar player from The Who who boasted and said that one day when I stand before God, I'm going to say, who do you think you are? And God will look at him and say, who, 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 who are you? <laughs> now, that, that just came to mind. I am so sorry. <laughs> And the reason we can laugh at that is this. That won't ever happen. That won't ever happen. You will be silent before him. And then in Romans 3.20, he closes it all up and says this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given to us to show us our sin and our unrighteousness. And the reality is that we have, there, there are two kinds of righteousness. There's an earned righteousness 
and there is a received righteousness. The earned righteousness is something you have to do. You have to live your life sinless. Now, you might say today, okay, I can start that today. Too late. Too late. Or you can receive righteousness that comes from God. And what Paul does is he concludes this argument by saying this. Listen carefully. You, Mr. Mr. Immoral Man, you want to live your life on your own, free from God, thinking that you can do it without any of his involvement in your life? No, sir. One day you will stand under the wrath of a holy God. And you, Mr. Morally Superior Man, who looks down on the immoral people and think that you're better and that you're doing all these good things and that you're in right standing. No, sir, you too will be under the wrath of a holy God. And you, Mr. Religious Man, you who's trying to do everything according to rituals and regulations and rules and works, trying to please me by the things that you do, you too will be under the wrath of a holy God. And you, Mr. Skeptical, skeptical man, you think you can out-question and maneuver your way through logic, you too will be under the wrath of a holy God. And here's the problem. We're all on the same ship. And that ship is sinking. And what we do on a sinking ship like that, we try, we try to rearrange our lives. We try to rearrange our thoughts. We try this behavior modification. And if I can do all of these right things, maybe I can survive this shipwreck. That is like rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. It's going down. Next week, we'll look in the good news. But I can't wait till next week to tell you that. So let me just tell you right now, every problem needs a solution, doesn't it? Every problem needs a solution. A little problem requires a little solution. A big problem requires a big solution. For example, if you needed to tote a bicycle, you can tote a bicycle with another bicycle. But you don't need an 18-wheeler to tow a bicycle. If your child comes to you and says, I need some money to go to the movies, you say, okay, I can alleviate that. Here's $1,000. They don't need $1,000 to go to the movie. Maybe 30, <laughs> but not 1,000. And if a tow truck or an 18-wheeler breaks down, a bicycle cannot tow it. Something greater than the 18-wheeler has to pull it. The solution has to be greater or equal to the problem. Our problem is sin. But the solution is Jesus. That's the solution. That you and I deserve the wrath of a holy God. We deserve to be separated from him for all of eternity because of even one sin that we're even born with. But God said, no, no, I love you too much. And the solution is gonna be the biggest, greatest solution that you can ever imagine. I'm going to give you my son. And he's gonna take on flesh and live the life you live, yet without sin. 
He's going to be the perfect human sacrifice. And he will go to the cross on your behalf. He will be beaten without mercy. He will go into hypovolemic shock after the cat of nine tails on his back. He is going to carry the cross to the hill of Golgotha. He will collapse under the weight of it. Someone will help him. His hands and feet will be pierced to that cross. He will be held up naked for all the world to see in humiliation and defeat and even the sign of a curse by being on a tree. And in the midst of all of that, every sin that you can imagine will be placed on him so much that I will turn my back and cannot even see the sinfulness of humanity placed on my son. But in that moment, he will take your penalty. He will take your death. He will take your unfaithfulness. And he will, by his death, satisfy my wrath. And all of my wrath will be poured on him. And by that sacrifice... I will validate it by raising him from the dead on the third day. And because he's alive today, you can know without any question that I've done everything necessary to satisfy the debt of your sin. And the answer for you is you can try to earn righteousness, which you never can, or you can receive the righteousness that will be yours through Jesus. What will it be, Mr. Immoral Man? What will it be, Mr. Morally Superior Man? What will it be, Mr. Religious Man? What will it be, Mr. Skeptic? Your righteousness or his? And that's the question before us. There's the answer. If you're a child of God here this morning, then you can know and rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want to tell you, in the last four weeks that I've been studying this, my heart is overflowing with joy and unbelief that God would do that for me. And that he would do that for you. And that I can live my life from this point on and I can know this because Jesus went to the cross on my behalf and he acquitted me of what I deserved. I can never again be charged for a sin that Jesus paid for. So I'm free. Not free to sin. Free to walk in the love and the grace and the joy of the Lord Jesus. And if you're a child of God, that's your freedom. It should drive us to worship. It should drive us to humility. It should drive us to the place of constantly giving thanks for what he has done through his son. And we are secure and safe for all of eternity. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, You're not a child of God. You've been fighting it. You've been asking the questions. You've been trying to do things your own way. And through these weeks, you have seen very clearly that I can never get there. And Jesus in his kindness and his goodness has shown to you that he's here for you. 
He's here for you right now. You can keep struggling, but you'll never get there. Or you can surrender. You know what surrender is? Sending up the flag and say, I'm no longer in charge. I surrender to you. I surrender to your love. I surrender to your grace. I surrender to your forgiveness. I surrender to your redemption. I surrender to your lordship in my life. Those are the things you surrender. You surrender your entire life to him. And he's calling on some of you today to stop all this nonsense and know that God is true and the culture's a lie. And he has the answer for your soul. There's your received righteousness that is yours in Christ. Are you going to keep rearranging the furniture on the deck of a sinking ship? Or are you going to bail that ship into the arms of a Savior who loves you more than you can ever fathom? Let's pray. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Father, we thank you for the incredible grace and patience that you have in our lives and of your incredible love for us. And Father, we thank you that you are just and you're righteous and you're a holy God and you can't just turn sin away without the penalty. Yet in your son, he has satisfied your justice, your righteousness, your wrath. He has demonstrated your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. And we thank you that Jesus is the answer. And for those of us who are in Christ, Father, may you stir within us. May your spirit raise up within us a a well of praise and adoration. And Father, if there are those here today that are without you, and your spirit has been working in their lives and convicting them, and they are to the point right now where they know that they need to surrender it all and step into a relationship with you by receiving Christ by faith, surrendering to him, and making a commitment to follow him. Would you work in their hearts even now? With every head bowed and every eye closed, if, if that's you today, if you're in a Cross Point Center, if you are watching online, If that's you and you're willing to surrender, then I want to lead you in a prayer. Just simply say, dear God, I am a sinner. And under your justice, I stand condemned. But under your mercy, I believe you have given Jesus as my Savior. And today I surrender to him. I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus. 
And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come in and take up residency within my very being. And I yield to you this day as Lord and Savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for giving me new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.